evidence and answers. Just as there are different approaches to evangelism, there are also different approaches to apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat and his guest will be explaining the difference between classical and presuppositional apologetics and why it's so important to know these two approaches to defending the faith. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Now, in today's broadcast, Pat will be interviewing Dr. Richard Howe as they explain the difference between classical and presuppositional apologetics. Here with part one. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the issues of today. Well, just as there are different approaches to evangelism, there are different approaches to apologetics. Well, what are the different types of apologetic systems out there? Well, to help us address this issue is Dr. Richard Howe, Professor Emeritus of Philosophy and Apologetics at Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, one of the finest seminaries for the training of men and women in the defense of the gospel uh, in the world. And he'll tell you a little bit about that great seminary founded by Dr. Norman Geisler. Dr. Howe received a bachelor's in Bible from Mississippi College, an MA in philosophy from the University of Mississippi, and a PhD in philosophy from the University of Arkansas. So, Dr. Howe, welcome to Evidence and Answers. I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much for letting me be a part of your ministry there. Well, you know, Richard, there are different types of apologetic systems. Why is it important for people to know there's different types of apologetic systems out there? So I appreciate the way you teed up the subject by sort of comparing it or connecting it in some sense to evangelism. So imagine people having a discussion about various, quote, types of evangelism. And obviously we would care about two things. One, what does the Bible say about evangelism? And two, practically speaking, what's a bad way to do it versus a better way to do it kind of thing. So I think it's similar to that with apologetics. In fact, apologetics used to be called pre-evangelism because it was trying and attempted to address maybe intellectual roadblocks or barriers that people may have to even consider the claims of Christ on their life. So just as in evangelism, there, there are biblical instructions, I think it's the same thing with apologetics. And just as in evangelism, there are bad ways to do it and ineffective ways. There are the uh, same way in apologetics. There are better or worse ways to actually go about, practically speaking, how do we address the intellectual challenges that people bring to us uh, when we share the gospel. Yes, and basically that's, you know, apologetics. It's, you know, it's 2 Corinthians 10.5. We demolish those strongholds, those intellectual barriers that keep people from seriously considering, you know, the claims of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. And I, I love that Second Corinthians 10 passage. It reminds me of what Jesus said is that you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So the spiritual warfare we're involved in is a battle over truth. And we're tearing down arguments, we're bringing thoughts into captivity, and it dovetails right in with what the Bible says elsewhere, like in Jude 3, that tells us to earnestly contend for the faith, or the main verse I think apologists go to is the First Peter 3.15, where the Bible tells us to always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in us, and that wor the Greek word for answer there is where we get the word apologetics. 
So that is, so the Bible commands us to do this. And, and I usually tell my students, we, we do this with the measure of faith that God has given us, with the resources and tools and opportunities that God has given us. So we don't all necessarily need to aspire to be the next Ravi Zacharias necessarily, although that would be fine. But even if we don't rise to that level of prominence, or Norm Geisler, if you mentioned him already, even if we don't rise to that level of sort of human prominence, we still can be used of God in whatever sphere of influence that God has put in our lives with family, friends, and chance encounters with strangers. Yes. Now, there are several schools of apologetics, but they basically fall into two broad umbrellas, classical and presuppositional. Explain to us a little bit what is classical apologetics. So, yeah, you're right. They are, they are kind of broad. There are variations within both of those that you mentioned, and there are several others floating around on the fringes that try to get into the conversation. But you're right. Basically, it's going to boil down to a person being either some form of classical or some form of presuppositional. In effect, classical approach in apologetics will give credence to the legitimacy of what the theologians call natural theology. That means that there are truths about God that God has revealed about himself through the creation. So Romans 1 verses 19 through 21 basically say that the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen being understood by or through the things that are made. So the classical model takes that as its starting point to say there are things about just our normal lives and our encounter with reality, with rocks and trees and people and clouds or whatever we see around us, that give evidence of the existence and nature of God. It's the same thing that Psalms is saying in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. So the classical model is going to try to uh, take advantage of the faculties of reason that we've been created with and use those faculties of reason to build arguments and uh, gather evidence to try to show the lost man the bankruptcy of his, of his atheism or his false religion or whatever the issue under contention is. So the classical approach generally will try to establish the existence of God first before it starts giving specific evidence for Christianity. And the reason for that is because when we argue for the truth of the Christian faith, as opposed to, say, Islam or just Old Testament Judaism in isolation, one of the things we have to appeal to is historical miracles, the greatest of which is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. But a miracle is really only possible in principle if there is a God. So before the atheist, if he's consistent, could really consider the historical claims of, say, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he has to already come to understand that there is a God who can perform miracles. Now, in contrast to that, the presuppositionalists, in effect, would say, unless you start with the presupposition of God, then you're not able to even reason at all. Now, I obviously don't think that's true, but it can get subtle sometimes as to why they say that, but that's really what it boils down to, and that's where the, the moniker presuppositionalism came from. They didn't really pick that word for themselves, but it was sort of attached to them because they insisted, their sort of fountainhead, Cornelius Van Til, insisted that you have to presuppose God before you can know anything else, and so that's why it's called presuppositionalism. Yes. Now, so classical apologetics starts with reason and that there are first principles and that through reason we can make a 
reasonable case that indeed a God does exist and then build from there. Whereas presuppositional apologetics says that is not a valid place to start with reason. Why Correct. is that? Well, they're going to say that reason in the lost man is being, in effect, sabotaged by his rebellion against God. And so you'll hear phrases like autonomous human reason. And what they mean by that is if we think that there is sort of neutral ground on which both the believer and unbeliever can stand, from which we can have dialogue and debate over facts, and then from those facts try to see if we can leverage an argument for God and his attributes, they're going to say from the very beginning that procedure is already conceded the argument because Van Til says it this way, any God that is the result of an argument could not possibly be the God of the Bible. And they say that because, he says that because, they would say, well, God has to be sort of the beginning of all thought and all knowledge. He's the ultimate authority. So if you think you can argue to an ultimate authority, they would say, then whatever you're arguing from, let's say facts about the world, that would be your ultimate authority. And if you're using human reason to do that, maybe human reason is your ultimate authority, is, is kind of the way they frame it. So for them, it's, it's very theologically motivated in terms of how they understand the fall, for example, but not just the fall, but that is, is prominent, and also how they understand what that has resulted in in terms of our human continuous rebellion against God and a refusal to submit to him as the ultimate authority. Yes. Tell us about their understanding of human nature. A lot of it comes from the reformed doctrine of total depravity. Many say that, you know, man is so fallen in sin that even his ability to reason and discover truths of God is not possible because he's so fallen in sin. Correct. I think that if you pressed them on it or if you gave them the opportunity, they would say, well, as we find ourselves now after the fall, everyone has fallen in sin. But they would try to argue that their principles, that is, that we have to begin with God, that he's the beginning of all wisdom and knowledge. And so if you don't already grant God from the beginning, then your argument is always going to be askew. They would grant that in principle even before the fall, that Adam and Eve, before they sinned, still had to start with God as the one who can tell the only one who can tell them the truth about what they are experiencing through their senses or what they're thinking with their reason. So it's not merely that they think it's, it's sort of a plan B. Now that we've fallen, we've got to have some method to compensate for that crippling effect that the fall had on our intellect. They think it's really woven into the very nature of the creator-creature distinction, that the creature always needs God to begin the creature's thinking at every level. Now, tell us, why is it then that, that we can start with reason and we don't have to start with, you know, presupposing God, that we can start with reason and its basic premises? Well, I think it's important for us to realize the difference between how we might use the expression start with. Somebody's building, a, a, let's say, a, a chair out of wood. They could say, well, to build the chair, I'm going to start with wood. But they could also say just as truly, but in meaning in a slightly different way, I'm going to start with my hammer and nails and saws. Well, the difference between the two is you're, ta you're talking about what you start with in terms of the actual material out of which the chair is constructed versus what you, quote, start with as far as the tools according to which those materials are accessed. 
So by analogy, what I would argue and what the way I would frame it is what we really start with is just the external world around us. That's what every human being literally encounters first as soon as they come out of the womb is the air they breathe and the, the light that they see, the sounds that they hear. Now, to be sure, we know as we grow up and we come to the Lord and we understand his word that those faculties of seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, and smelling, we know they're created by God. But, but I didn't, we didn't necessarily know that, what, that my eyes were created by God before I was able to tell the difference between a sunny day and a rainy day. So the classical model says, look, we have these faculties Regardless of what anybody thinks is where they came from, no one can deny that the lost man as well as the saved man can tell the difference between a sunny day and a rainy day or the difference between a loud noise and a, and a soft noise. So the classical model is going to say just starting with the very mundane objects that we encounter through our faculties, we can leverage an argument in the vein of Romans chapter 1, 21, we can leverage an argument for the existence and attributes of God. So the reason I'm, I'm sort of a stickler about that is because I've been in enough debates with presuppositionalists that they try to exploit this ambiguity and criticize them and say, well, you start with reason, and then we start with the Bible. And I go, well, in one sense I start with reason, but reason is a tool. What I start with is what I see here, taste, touch, or smell around me as the material out of which my reason can build arguments and stuff. So you're right. We start with reason in one sense of the word, but in a, in a different sense, what we're starting with is just the external world. That's where we begin all of our knowledge. Yes. You know, and, and I believe that was Paul's approach. He says in verse 20 there of Romans 1, the invisible attributes of God, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Uh, he's talking about fallen man there. But, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. You know, and he goes on even in Romans 2 in order to answer the objection of the nations. How could God condemn us? We weren't there when Moses received the law. So how could we be held morally accountable? And Paul says, look, the works of the law are written on the heart. God has revealed his righteousness through the things that he made. And later in, say, in Acts, when Paul is encountering, in his evangelism, he's encountering lost people, he appeals to God's providence over history and how God has superintended the affairs of men and giving us rain and season and crops and these kind of things. And he uses as an argument that, look, you, you've seen these with your own eyes, that God is, there is a God there that's more or less taking care of of the world. And it's also very interesting to me if one goes through their Old Testament and see how many times the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appealed to what the Israelites could see, hear, taste, touch, or smell to prove that he was the only true God. You saw the lightnings, you heard the thunder, you ate the manna, you know, and he appeals to that over and over again. And, and that, I think that shows us that there is a sense in which, a very important sense in which, these faculties with which God has created us are the means by which we know the truths about the creation that he gave us, and then from that, who he is as creator. And last, I, I would add to that, isn't it telling how much the New Testament, when it's defending the resurrection of Jesus, that it appeals to what people heard and saw and even tasted. We ate with him, we touched him, we heard him, we saw him. And again, appealing to these faculties that are normal, 
any normal person, I mean, you know, obviously they're blind, they can't see, but I mean, just the way we're normally created, those were the means by which arguments and evidence was accumulated and built to leverage the, the case for the Christian faith. Now, there are some who will say, well, you can't reason anybody into the kingdom. Man is so fallen in his sin and rebellion, distorted in his thinking, and, and you can't reason anyone into the kingdom. What do you have to say about that? Yeah, this is a very important point. I'm glad you, you asked that because I think it's, it's a straw man in the sense that it's an accusation they make against the classical model when the classical model never said that we could reason people into the kingdom. And so what it highlights is a, an important truth about the, how we stand before God. It's one thing for me to be able to see that the sun is shining, even if I'm an atheist. It's another thing, though, to take that shining sun as a evidence that there's a God with whom I have to do and that I need to bow before and worship. So the first one is just more or less a normal faculty of seeing. The second one, though, is a moral faculty that has to do with whether we are or are not in rebellion against God. So I think sometimes in the debate between the classical and the presuppositionalist, the presuppositionalist unwittingly blurs and confuses those two. The Bible clearly talks about how man is in rebellion against the truths of God, but it doesn't follow from that that I'm in rebellion such that I can't tell the sun is shining. So I agree 100%. You cannot reason people. It's like the old cliche. It's almost hackneyed because we've heard it so much. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And I think that's what that is all about. Namely, we can bring people to the truths of the gospel by argument and reason, both from, you know, apologetics, but also from scriptural revelation. Here's what God's claims on your life are. We can do what we can to bring them to that by God's grace. But then what they do with that is between them and God through the Holy Spirit. And that's not even an apologetic task. There's no, we can't touch people's hearts and spirits. We can just be used of God as instruments to bring them to there. And in, in that respect, it's very much like evangelism. I think any evangelist worth his salt would say, look, all I can do is preach the gospel and persuade, but whether people respond to the gospel is not up to the evangelist, as long as he doesn't make any, create impediments. But I'm saying, in principle, it's not up to the evangelist whether people get saved. So it's really not up to the apologist what people do with the arguments. Our task is just to present those arguments as cogently as we can. Yes, there are several uh, good friends of mine in the classical camp that state that you need reason even before the gospel, because you need to be able to comprehend the gospel and understand well there is a god i am a sinner he is holy i'm unable to work my way and work off my sin on my own and so would you agree with that that you even need reason before the gospel absolutely you would have to know there's a difference between there is a god and there is no god you would have to know the difference between Jesus did die for your sins and Jesus didn't die for your sins. All of those are principles of logic that are part and parcel of what reason is. Augustine even said once that uh, before we can believe a message, we've got to be able to understand that it is something to be believed in the first place. And I think this brings up another thing that often gets uh, confused in, in, by the presuppositionalists, and that's a proper understanding of how faith and reason relate. So classically in the church, 
reason would be when we believe something because we've seen it demonstrated to us, whether it's a mathematical proof or a scientific proof or historical proof or whatever the demonstration looks like. If we believe something because we've seen the demonstration of it or we've experienced it ourselves, that's one thing. But faith then classically has been taking things on the basis of authority. So there may be complex scientific conclusions that I wouldn't have any capacity to understand the demonstration. I have to decide whether I'm going to, quote unquote, trust the scientist who tells me what the speed of light is, let's say. But reason has to judge whether an authority is a competent authority. You don't just believe anybody, no matter what they say, without reason telling you there's somebody to be believed. So when we bring a Bible to someone and try to preach from the Bible, the lost man at that point doesn't know the difference between a Bible and a Quran, for example, or a Book of Mormon or anything else. In his mind, okay, these are just a lot of books are all vying for my attention. How can I judge between them? And the apologists is one say, here's how we know the Bible is actually God's book. This is how we know that. And this is how it's different from the Quran or from the Book of Mormon or any other of these so-called sacred books out there. So there, there's this got to be this certain relationship between faith and reason. And then even when it comes to faith, reason has to be first to judge the viability of competent authorities. Yes, you bring up a great example there. You know, I often use the one of uh, if someone comes up to me and says, Pat, what car should I buy? And if I tell you Toyota, your first reaction would be, well, why? And you're going to look at my evidence. If I say, well, I like the name. It makes me feel good. You'll kind of be like, uh, I'm not sure, you know, but if, if I have good evidence, if I say, well, I've got a few mechanic friends and they recommend Toyota, Car and Driver magazines in the top 10, blah, blah. So we actually put the two together all the time. Absolutely. Absolutely, we do. And the presuppositionalist objects because they think somehow for the human being to judge, to try to come to the conclusion that God is a competent authority who wrote the Bible, they think that's an insult to God somehow. No, no, no. If you think you can, you're putting yourself in a judgment seat over God. And I go, no, you're confusing something here. And this is an illustration I heard from one of my heroes in the apologetics world is J.P. Moreland. He said, well, consider the difference between trying to read a map to get to, now I live in the Atlanta area. So somebody's trying to drive, they're, they're on the mainland, they're trying to drive to, to Atlanta. So they need a map to get to Atlanta. Well, notice the relationship between the map and the city of Atlanta. It may be the case that a person would need a map to know how to get to Atlanta, but there would have to actually be an Atlanta before there could be a map. So what that illustrates is that in terms of the process of knowing, I may need a map prior to me finding Atlanta. In the order of being or existence, there has to be Atlanta before there could be a map. So the classical model just says, look, apologetics is like directing people to maps. It's not an insult to Atlanta for somebody to say, I can't believe you have such an inferior view of Atlanta that you would consult the map before you went straight to the city. You go, that doesn't make any sense. That It's not an insult to it, the city of Atlanta that I had to know the map before I could know Atlanta, so to speak. So it's not an insult to God to say that I know the physical world around me before I came to understand who God was and what his claims on my life was through what he did for us and his son, Jesus Christ. So I think that's an important distinction to, to sustain there in the conversation. Yeah, so a classical apologist would, you know, that's how he would approach an unbeliever. Well, how would a presuppositionalist 
approach an unbeliever, let's say an atheist. Well, okay, now this is where it gets very telling, if not interesting. My charge against presuppositionalists is that when it actually comes down to the nuts and bolts of confronting unbelief, they invariably end up doing something very similar to what the classical model has been doing all along. So despite all their protestations that our approach is a compromise and it's autonomous human reason and it's an insult to God, when it gets down to it, you can go on YouTube and listen to presuppositionalists. They start trying to do things like this. They say, well, if you're a naturalist, a materialist, like a scientist, you think everything's just physical, how can you account for the laws of logic? Or how can you account for principles of morality or things like that? Well, those are great apologetic questions. And teeing those questions up to challenge, let's say in this case, an atheist, is exactly what the classical model excels at. run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcast, like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners, for the opportunity to donate head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. 